Hello and welcome to Careers Talk. According to the top of my CV, I'm Kerry Eustace. So, for all the chronic office clock watchers and Monday morning dreaders, this week we'll be asking what to do if you hate your job. And no, the solution isn't always just to leave. Plus, we'll be debating the appeal of a 20-hour week and Dear Julian comes over all what not to wear as our careers guru dishes out some tips for a candidate facing a style dilemma. But first, to this week's news, Harriet, I love my job, Minter, and Ali, isn't work great, White, are, as always, here in the studio to share their favourite stories of the week. Hello. Hi. Hiya. But um, I'm going to start this week because I've got uh, a story about the 21-hour working week. The theory that I've plucked out is from a piece by Ruth Potts, and she's from the economic think tank, the New Economic Foundation. And she wrote a piece for The Guardian's Comment is Free in response to Adita Chakraborty's piece on why our jobs are getting worse. And Ruth agrees with Adita that a lack of autonomy and the opportunity to innovate leads to dissatisfaction with how we feel about our working lives. And, and, and she pointed out some examples that this has actually been around for a long time. When Ford used to recruit in uh, 1913, they'd have to hire 900 men if they had to fill 100 posts. It's like Because so many people would end up leaving their, their turnaround. Oh, so they'd hire 900 people... And they'd start, what, 100 off on the first week and by the end of it they'd well, all leave I, I and so they'd replace them the next whoa, week. Whoa, whoa, I don't know. All I know... I'm confused by this really bad hiring practice. Well, because so, if they had 100 roles that they needed to fill, they'd uh-huh. need to take 900 on because so many would get so fed up with it or wouldn't enjoy the working practice. Ruth also argues that our fixation on efficiencies isn't making the most of the human workforce because we're more sort of creative and we've got potential to do new stuff. But when you're sort of put under efficiencies, it's quite difficult to deal with. So she says it's time to change the way we work. Um, And the way that the think tank wants to do this is for a 21 hour working week to become the social norm. Like everybody sort of adopt it, employers favour it, employees favour it and they feel that it can sort of help with sort of interlinked problems such as unemployment, uh, inequality, overwork, us enjoying our lives more. So I'm, I'm just questioning this. So we would work three days a week, is that the idea roughly? Yeah. So what happens on, if you're doing a job, if you're a doctor, you'd have essentially three people doing one job in yeah. a week. Yeah, okay. I guess that could be one way an employer could structure it. And and there are sort of some countries or companies have adapted versions of this, not the 21-hour working week. That's yet to be taken up. But say, for example, France in the year 2000 introduced the 35-hour working week. And I think it was about 56 to 60% of people said that it had improved their lives. I think it does improve their lives. But I know one interesting fact about working in France, which is that lots of people, because of the 35-hour week, um, companies won't hire you. They'll only take you on as a self-employed consultant. Um, and what this means is that you don't get any of the benefits that comes with being a full-time employee. So because they want you to opt out of the 35-hour week or they want the ability to sack you really easily because work has quite, uh, France has quite strict um, employment laws. So to get round that, a lot of companies cut underneath and just Ooh. hire people self-employed. That's really interesting. Well, Utah in the USA have, have done something. So they trialled a four-day yeah. week where you'd work a 10-hour day. And that was mainly in their public services. And that sort of, I think it improved to some service delivery and the employees were really pleased with it. And if you sort of remember when we were in the midst of the recession in 2009, a lot of uh, companies introduce sort of recession measures so asking you to take on paid leave yeah. and KPMG offered um, employers a four-day week and I think it was like 86% sign up on that but you know what do we think about this I mean you raised the interesting point of two people sharing one job 
I, mean, I think two people sharing one job is difficult anyway because you have to, when you're recruiting, you have to find two people who can work essentially with one mindset because what happens if somebody does something on the Monday that affects what person on Thursday is doing and they don't agree with it? How does how does that work? Yeah. And also, I do wonder if, if we said there is a 21-hour working week, whether a lot of companies would try and find sneaky ways around it. Because, I mean, we're supposed to be on a 40-hour working week now, and I don't know many people who absolutely stick to that. I spoke to Julian about it when we recorded. Dear Julian, Tiffany's actually thought that having two people in one role could be really good for business because there would be a competitive... They'd have a, there'd be in competition <laughs> with each other to deliver the role. Like, healthy That's competition, yeah. so that it might sort of improve output in that way. But what does it mean for wages, though? Like, because I would say if you were to re- reduce your wages now, you know, and you're still set up, you've got car payments, mortgage payments, all based on a 40-hour week. I can't imagine how easy it would be for people just to downscale, you know, overnight. Well, well mm. I don't know whether it would be overnight, and that's why mm. some of the, the the examples I mentioned earlier were they're sort of introducing it gradually. Mm. And that's the whole point, that we do sort of downsize our lives and that we consume less for the mm. benefit of the economy as well as some of the social issues that they raise. And they actually said that where it works best is where um, there's secure structure for your job and the pay is favourable. So it's perhaps not best for those workers who do just take their jobs because you know, they're <laughs> mean. Yeah. Harriet, what story have you got for us? Sure. Um, okay, this week I am going to look at full-time employment not 21 hours unfortunately for students and there's a new website being launched called what do graduates do scotland Um, so it's aimed at scottish students but i think it applies to everyone and the idea is for students who are looking at going to university to see what graduates doing their course have then gone on to do afterwards so for example i would say i did a politics degree and i am now working at the guardian that's the idea of it hasn't launched yet it's part of the association of graduate careers advisory service scotland um but when it does it's hopefully going to answer that question of if i go to university and do a degree what will i get out at the end of it and maybe give some reassurance to students who are a bit worried about whether they should now be going straight into the um, workplace and whether their degree has any value Mm, doing research into alumni can be a really good way can't it to learn about sectors and just the options that your degree offers if you don't really understand what your studies can lead to absolutely they already do um UCAS already does something where at the end of every year it ranks universities in terms of employment so you can see which universities have the best employment records Mm -hmm. and I think that says a lot a about the university and b about possibly their career services as well and what they kind of teach students whilst you're there so that's worth looking at as well and I know I've mentioned this before, but we've got a UK version on the Guardian Education site, so I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Ali, what's your story? Mm, Excellent. Well, if you're listening in now and you're having a bad day at work, (laughs) or you've ever dreamt of quitting in a spectacular fashion, you might be interested in air steward Stephen Slater, who you've probably seen because he's got worldwide Mm. attention. But basically, if you haven't, he announced his resignation over the public address system in the aeroplane, grabbed a beer from the galley, apparently, and then activated the emergency slide. And it's been reported that you know, he snapped after he was hit by a piece of luggage a passenger was taking down from an overhead locker, apparently. Uh, but, you know, before, you know, you think it's all, oh, but um, he was later arrested, I'm afraid. And then charged with ch- criminal mischief, reckless endangerment and trespassing. I've seen some nicer ways of doing it as well. There was someone who put on a cake, his resignation letter, and said thank you to his colleagues and boss. Quite sweet. That's nice. (laughs) But, you know, whatever your reason to quit, there's some really good advice out there, and none of it says do anything dramatic. Before you're tempted to go a bit crazy, you know, first of all, have a good reason to quit. Not liking your boss, colleague, 
colleagues or getting annoyed with customers isn't really enough. You know, we all have bad days at work. It's life. And then if you want to quit, do follow the protocol, you know, arrange a meeting and, you know, get that notice period and leaving day set up with your boss. And, you know, um, stick to it. Don't be dramatic. Think what you're going to say when you go in there. But most importantly, don't burn your bridges because mm. you never know when your paths might cross again. A lot of industries, I think journalism, one of them are quite small. You know, everyone yeah. knows everyone and you can soon get round if you do anything a bit crazy. And you might need a good reference at the end of the day or you want to be rehired. I think that's a really good point is um, lots of firms do exit interviews. So when you hand in your notice, I'll then say, well, we'd like to bring you in for an interview to talk about why you're leaving and what, you know, your experience has been at the company. And no matter how much you want to, my big tip would be just lie your way through (laughs) and say you've loved every minute of it. It's been a pleasure. It's been an absolute pleasure because actually when you're doing that, you haven't left the company. Mm. It could be a few weeks before you go. So if you say anything bad, it's going to go around everyone who's there. And there's a chance that they the company you're going to might not have collected your references yet so just be a bit careful and who knows you might want to come back exactly (laughs) thanks very much Now injecting some much needed style into careers talk, Julian Lindley creative director at Bauer addresses a graduate fashion dilemma in Dear Julian Hello there, we've got a fantastic question this week, normally we're dealing with questions about business this is something that have uh, affects every single person in the workplace. It's about fashion. So the question's from Grad Girl one In a few weeks, I have my induction week for my graduate role with a major UK bank. I've been told that the induction week will involve outdoor activities and school workshops. The dress code for these days is smart casual with the explanation, clothes which are appropriate for the business learning environment, such as smart jeans, trainers, and suitable for outdoor activities. Does anyone have any recommendations for what sort of thing I should wear? The reason I love this question is because a good pal of mine, once years ago, when I asked her uh, how she felt about her new job, which was a really fantastic job on a new launch for magazine, she didn't say that she was worried about what to do, what to say to the boss, how to kind of get her stories. The thing that she was most concerned about was what she should do with her coat when she got to the office, where she should hang it up. And you know what? I totally get it. Because it's this stuff that kind of, you know, it's like our clothes or our comfort blanket. They, They form part of the routine of our days. And if you feel comfortable, it can make a massive difference to how you kind of go about your day, how confident you feel, I suppose. So... Uh, grad girl in answer to your question I mean I think I have to say I think they spelled it out pretty well I mean smart casual really does give you license to wear smart jeans definitely no holes in the knees or holes in the backside make sure they're a new pair of jeans make sure your trainers are smart and not you know ones that you go running around the track in I would make sure I wear plenty of layers so that you have a t-shirt if you need to run around but you've got a jumper if it's because those conference rooms that you're going to be sat in are going to be bloody freezing they have said smart casual so it's really important that you you don't want to go standing out you don't want to be the person that when you turn up to your conference everyone's sort of nudging each other and saying oh my god look what she's worn so absolutely keep it to jeans t-shirts trainers jackets and jumpers but Again, make sure everything is smart and tailored, not kind of uh, sloppy and baggy clothes. You want to show that you're a professional still. 
So Q&A time now. Ali has some advice from the forum front line. Um, which discussions stood out for you this week, Al? Uh, well, yesterday we had acing your teacher training and some, you know, great tips and advice for people who are literally, you know, terms starting very, very soon. So people stepping into the classroom for the first time. So if you're about to start a PGCE or another type of teacher training, the first tip I've got for you is, you know, um, one of our panellists said trainees have, that have gone through the course have been asked what their advice would be for new entrants. And top of the list is keeping on top of your paperwork and your filing, keep it up to date, which sounds like, you know, just a bit of practical advice. But apparently a few minutes spent filing plans, resources, reflections, notes does save you a lot of time and stress later on. Because, you know, usually the first weeks of the course are less busy when, you know, when you start teaching full time, all your time is going to be taken up, you know, with lesson preparation and marking once you're teaching full time. So once you know what's required of you, really spend that time thinking how you will organise your time and your space in order to stay on top of everything. Trainees have to keep like a diary as well, don't they? Sort of like a reflection diary or an assessment diary of what they're learning and how they feel about their, how they're getting on in order to develop. So, yeah, that's a really good tip. Yeah, yeah. And another of our panellists had a good tip about that is, you know, keep make sure you do keep hold of all that information because I think it does go by in a bit of a blur. So, you know, try and keep on top of what you've learned over the time. And it's good to reflect that way as well. And as well, because you're not the only one going through this training, you'll need the support of the other trainees on the course. And I think from um, the way it works, you have those first few weeks together and then you will go off on your placement. So one of our experts said it's really important to keep a network of, you know, all these other trainees. So because at the end of the day, there's support for you. They're going through the same things. They can help you get things in proportion. You know, if you think you're the only one who's daunted or overwhelmed, you're not. They're exactly the same place as you. So, you know, try and get some meetup dates in advance when you can talk and talk things over and get together and, you know, swapping the good stories and the bad stories is just a vital part of the PGCE course, apparently. Again, last of all, you know, once once you started in the school, you know, apparently a lot of trainees are obsessed with whether they're going to be able to cope and whether they're going to be a good teacher. You know, it's all about them, in other words. And, you know, one of our experts said it tends to create anxiety without achieving very much. Really, it's more productive to focus on the learners. Get the opportunity when you're training to watch the people, see how they take or take everything on board, you know, or make you a better teacher in the end. Thanks very much, Ali. No problem. Now, are our jobs really getting worse? A big theme in the world of work and job seeking this week has been how dissatisfied we apparently all are with our jobs. Earlier, we heard the inspiring tale of Stephen Slater, who quit his job in spectacular fashion, and on Tuesday, Guardian journalist Aditya Chakrabarti was bemoaning the lack of thinking required from many roles in the workplace. Joining us now to discuss some of the points raised in Aditya's piece and offer some survival advice to those who do hate their jobs is David Winter, a careers consultant with C2, which is part of the careers group at the University of London and lead author of the always fascinating Careers in Theory blog. Hello, David. Hello. Thanks for coming in. Um, To start off, can you tell us what you made of Aditya's piece? Uh, Did did you agree? Did you think it was an accurate sort of portrayal of what work's like? Uh, It was interesting. Um, I forwarded it to one of my colleagues who said, thank you for depressing me. (laughs) Um, I I did think it was an interesting piece. Um, It raised some very interesting issues. I'm not sure how representative it really was. Um, I think he sort of picked his examples carefully to illustrate his sort of thesis. Um, There probably is an issue that is important that he's raised about sort of jobs and how they uh, affect people. There's a lot of talk in sort of management circles about something called employee engagement, 
Um, mm. It's a big sort of trendy buzzword at the moment. Yeah, it probably. is, isn't it? Um, because I think they realise that a lot of the sort of extrinsic motivations, you know, giving people bonuses or punishing them if they do bad things, actually doesn't really produce more enthusiastic workforce. It doesn't make people work harder or work better. And they've realised that actually more that the intrinsic value of a job is a much better motivation. They've really realised that people are actually enjoying themselves, tend to work harder, tend to put more in, tend to come up with better ideas. And so I think, yeah, it, it does raise some very interesting issues. I'm not sure that it represents the, the full range of reality. I think it's always been the case that there are jobs out there mm. that are sort of me mechanised. Um, I think just which jobs they are changes from time to time. So why, I mean, he mentioned sort of the management thinking that in the future that our workplaces were going to be more innovative and we'd have more autonomy. I mean, why is that important to employees and why does it make for a better working life? I think it's, it's linked to the idea of finding meaning in your work. Um, so that if you feel that you've got some control, uh, control you know, feelings of control are very important. You know, it, generally speaking, if you look at sort of stress uh, in people, quite often that is linked to feeling like you're out of control, like there's nothing you can do to, to change things. Um, and so I think certainly a lot of people that we see uh, who are contemplating career change, I mean, it's either one extreme or the other. They're either very, very bored uh, and not really feeling challenged in their work, as the, some of the, the people talked about in the article. Or the other end of the extreme, they're, they're too challenged. They're, you know, everything is too stressful. They've had so much extra work put on them, especially at the moment, because you know, people have halved their workforces and they're still expecting people to do the same amount of work. Yeah. Um, and so we get people at the other end of the extreme who are just saying, like, I can't cope anymore. Um, I've got too much to do, not enough time, not enough resources to actually do it. Too much is being expected of me. Um, and so, again, there's that feeling of lack of control. I can't actually control anything that I'm doing. I can't make a difference. Uh, and so I think that does have an impact. You know, work is something which, you know, takes up most of our lives. Um, and so if you're thinking, well, what I'm doing is pointless and repetitive or stressful and I'm not really having an impact, then that's going to affect how you feel about your life. Um, so, yeah. I'm getting depressing now. Oh, <laughs> no, no, there was another point that I wanted to raise, and um, it was a, this is a quote from the piece, and it says, when more and more of your work is claimed by routine and control, it becomes hard to bear, sort of similar mm -hmm. to what you said, especially when you have the qualifications that entitle you to expect more. And I find this really interesting. You know, is this another root of the problem? Are, are our expectations of job and work and the belief we're entitled to more part of why we're so unhappy? Should we feel entitled, I guess? Um, I think that is also quite a valid point, and it does come up a lot. Um, I mean, there's obviously a lot of talk at the moment about the expectations that have been raised of graduates. You know, we had a um, previous government trying to get 50% of young people into higher education. And I, I guess some of those people interpreted that message as, you know, get a degree and that will guarantee you a really good job. Um, and that's never been the case. It's almost like the metaphor that people have got is that, okay, a degree is like a ticket. You get the ticket and then you can go into the event and enjoy the concert. But it's more like the entrance fee to a marathon. Okay, <laughs> just p paying the entrance fee to the marathon doesn't mean you'll finish the race and you won't die on the, in the process. You know, you've still got the actual um, training and buying the right equipment and that kind of thing to, to enable you to actually do, you know, do the race in a good time. What can graduates do then if they've got these? How can you sort of discourage them from raising their expectations? To you, um, right? Tricky. Uh, if if you know the answer, tell me because we're still working on that one. <laughs> yeah. um, we but, want to know. <laughs> yeah. Um, obviously, it's it's important 
uh, and we're trying to do that. Universities are trying to do that. They're trying to take responsibility seriously of sort of educating students that, you know, okay, yes, university is about learning, but you need to think about what happens when it stops. Um, and so certainly we, you know, career services and universities are always trying new things to sort of raise that awareness with students. We often meet resistance from students because it's a message people don't want to hear. You know, no, who wants to hear the fact that you're going to need to do a bit more work and think hard about things? Yeah. It's not popular. Mm. Um, it's much better to think, well, actually, no, I'm enjoying myself. I'll go down the bar, you know, that kind of thing. I'm particularly drawn towards more idea of sort of telling stories. And again, a lot of career services are trying to bring, bring alumni in to actually, you know, say what life is really like in the outside world and what they wish they'd done when they were students uh, and that kind of thing. And I think that's a, a really good way forward because at least you need somebody you can identify with. Um, because if, if careers advisor comes in and tells you this is true, then they're just a careers advisor. What do they know? Um, but if somebody who's been you know, in your position and had gone through the process comes in and says, actually, this is true, then you tend to believe them, even if it's exactly the same thing that you're telling them. <laughs> Harry, you had a question about sort of diagnosing whether you hate I did, because I think um, I was once told that actually if you like your job three days a week, you're doing better than the majority of people out there. <laughs> um, so how do you spot when you've actually got a really serious <clears throat> problem with your job and when you're just a bit dissatisfied or you're just having a bad day? Um, that's a good question. It's a, it's a, it's a tricky one because it obviously varies from person to person. Um, I guess a couple of key clues. If you're not alone... So if everybody around you is feeling like this is a horrible place to work and, you know, this is mindless tedium, then you're probably right. Um, um, if you're on your own, then it might just be you. Or it may just be, your, you know, a square peg in a round hole. Um, so I think partly it's just sort of seeing how it affects other people. And, you know, and, and also maybe, as you say, measuring it over time. So given that um, job hunting at the moment is not as easy as it was, say, two, three years ago... Mm-hmm whilst you're if you've decided this is not the job for you and it's time to move on whilst you're looking for something else are there things that you can do to try and make your working day a bit easier to try and make getting out of bed in the morning a bit easier <laughs> um yeah i think that's one of the things that um so again so a lot of the, the people i talk to don't often think about is can i do something where i am now um this whole idea of, of something called role innovation um you know and a lot of jobs are more flexible than people tend to think. You know, it's not just about what's in the job description. Very few job descriptions actually describe the job that people are doing uh, because it will have changed over time and you know, the demands of the job will have changed, the way it fits into the organisation whole will have changed. Um, so one of the things that's sometimes worth doing is to think about, OK, what's the actual ultimate purpose of my job? You know, how does it fit into what the organisation that I'm working for is actually trying to do? And then think, well, can I do that in a different way? Can I meet those demands, but not necessarily by doing what I've always been doing? Can I look for opportunities to, to sort of take on new responsibilities or um, suggest ideas, and maybe because I've suggested them, I could be involved in them? I mean, that's certainly something that I, I guess I've been doing for my entire career. Um, I've never ended up doing exactly what it says <laughs> in the job description because I just look around me and go, well, actually, I'd much rather be doing something like, like that now can I find an excuse? You know, yeah. Can I make a, a good valid reason as to why that's a better use of my time uh, that will actually satisfy the people who are paying me the money? Uh, and so it's really about you know, if you like making a business case for changing what you want to do. So how can you identify a job that you're not going to hate? Is there a way that you can you know, <laughs> mm. sort of assess your personality and your skills so that you can avoid those? That $60 situation? million dollar question, yeah. <laughs> um, there is no one 
guaranteed, surefire way to do that for definite with no risk at all. Um, it's also complicated by the fact that, um, I don't know if you've, there's a book uh, called Stumbling on Happiness by Daniel Gilbert, which basically says we are very, very bad at working out what's going to make us happy. <laughs> but one of the things that he does suggest in that book is, it's not the perfect way, but one of the best ways is to talk to people a lot. Um, and one of the things that a lot of people don't do when they're about to go into a job is to actually do proper research, qualitative research, in terms of what that job would be like, talking to people informally. Um, so actually trying to find people who are in that role and just ask them lots of questions. And again, that's one of the things that I try to do with my clients is, is equip them with questions that are good questions. Can um, you give us some examples? Um, I guess it depends on the client. They're, they're always tailored to the client, but I, you know, it's often, you know, to what extent in this job will I have control over how I do things and when I do things? So coming back to our autonomy issue that we talked about before. Um, and can you give me examples of that? You know, so questions that actually get people to tell you stories, tell you examples and give you evidence. You've actually been doing quite an interesting initiative on your blog and Twitter about questions, haven't you? This sort mm. of an awkward questions. What's the hashtag for that? Uh, question yourself. It's a good resource. We'll put a link to that okay, on the show notes good. as well. The other thing I wanted to ask you about, at the top of the show in our news jam, we talked about a story that um, the new Economic Foundation are trying to sort of push a 21-hour working week. Mm -hmm. What do you think about a 21-hour working week? Do you think that that is going to lead to uh, people being happier about work? Um, <clears throat> some people. Um, you know, especially if actually work is only a part of what they value in life. Um, so you know, the whole thing about work-life balance is, is an increasingly big issue for people. We deal a lot with um, junior doctors uh, in some of the work that we do. And it's becoming one, you know, almost the number one issue that, that junior doctors take into consideration when they're looking at their specialty choice. They've got the European Working Time Directive, which limits the amount of hours they can work. And that's having an impact on their, their training. Um, you know, there's been talk about whether <clears throat> the doctors are actually becoming less safe because they have less experience. And I'm not sure that's the issue. It's, it's the fact that they're actually having to cram that experience under the wire. So, yeah, I'm not sure that you know, a simplistic solution like that is going to make a big difference. I think it's more about looking at the hours that people actually work and what they're doing within those hours. Okay, and, and just sort of round up, could you sort of give us some steps that you think people should perhaps take if they don't like their job? Okay, I guess first step, stop, reflect, you know, take a step backwards and try to work out what's going on. Because quite often in that sort of situation, you're reacting emotionally. And, you know, and there is a possibility within that that part of the cause of unhappiness is actually you. you know, I've, I've had people who, you know, they had a hard time at work because they always seemed to get into arguments with people and actually part of it was them. You know, they provoked confrontation. Mm. And once you realise that some of it is your responsibility, you can then decide what to do about it. You can then maybe try to find a job where it's okay to behave in those ways or you can try and change your behaviour. I guess the next step is then two-pronged. Partly it's thinking about, well, is there th are there things that I can do where I am now to change things and try to make things different? But at the same time, I think it's always worth starting to widen your horizons a bit and look out for other opportunities and just start the research. And I guess that's another thing that, that people do wrong, I guess, is they confuse career exploration with job hunting. So they think, I don't like what I'm doing, I must look for another job, rather than I must try to sort of explore what else is out there and maybe just start the investigation process and start it as a journey, rather than just instantly making things happen. And so that, again, that's something that we try and work with people. Say, actually, you know, career exploration, if you're thinking of changing, it takes time, it's not going to happen in an instant. And 
very few things in career terms happen in an instant. There, you know, there's this marvellous myth about somebody who gets the you know, revelation, this is what I should always have been doing. And again, lots of, of sort of career gurus will tell you, you, know, you need to find your dream career and your hidden career, and it's just there. And actually, that's kind of rubbish for most people. Most people, there isn't a dream career. It's just something you gradually build up and you, as, you, as you learn more about yourself and as you change as time goes on and as you sort of learn more about things. So it's really biting the bullet and getting to grips with that investigative process. Thanks very much, David. I hope you'll come back again. Um, well, if you invite me, I will. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> okay, thank you. Thanks again to David Winter. On to the jobs chart now. And Harriet has selected a bunch of cheery roles you're bound to enjoy. Charlie Vincent from Guardian Jobs is back in the studio to help Ali reveal the top ten. Kicking off the countdown at ten, it's a legal PA for McKinsey. In at nine, it's a content manager with Red Cat Solutions. Exchange team are looking for a digital project manager at eight. And at seven... It's executive assistant for a media entrepreneur via Judy Fisher Associates. Action for Children is looking for a campaigning officer at six. Right in the middle, it's a research manager with RP Cushing at five. In at four, we've a career receptionist for Nora Skemp. And at three, it's a category development manager for Ad Lib. With a shy smile at two, we've got a brand marketing manager for Stopgap. But beaming away at number one, it's a programme leader on sustainable livelihoods with Trocare. Before we go, here's what we've got coming up on the site next week. Okay, to start with, one for you fashion fans. On 6th of September, we have Roots into Fashion. The next day, 7th of September, we have Working as an Agent. And following that, the 8th of September, Working as a Graphic Designer. That's all for this week. Thanks very much to our guest David Winter from the Careers Group, Charlie Vincent from Guardian Jobs, Harriet Minter and Ali White. Careers Talk was produced by James Crawford. I'm Kerry Eustace and until next week, goodbye. Goodbye.